Hello, welcome to the New Criterion Podcast. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. Here at the New Criterion, every month is Poetry Month, but the month of April brings us poetry, a special section, our special poetry issue. Edited this year as every year by our poetry editor, David Yezzi, who joins me. David, welcome. James, thanks. Uh, I look forward to April um, every season, and um, we now have for many years been gathering um, essays on poetry as well as an expanded uh, section of poems uh, every April, and um, we have a really uh, good lineup this year, um, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, what, what a lineup. Why don't you walk us through it a little bit? Um, Wow, The Function of Criticism by Dennis Donahue. Dennis Donahue is really um, one of the finest um, uh, scholars and and critics, uh, to my mind, um, uh, working now. And um, Eliot is a poet, um, as I suspect uh, many people listening will know, that has been very important to Dennis. And this um, essay is... um, uh, focus on Eliot as critic, and in particular, uh, Eliot's essay, The Function of Criticism. And so um, one critic uh, talking about another uh, critic, uh, and certainly, um, you know, a poet critic who uh, is very important to the new criterion. Um, our magazine takes its name from the magazine that T.S. Eliot uh, edited. And so um, uh, very pleased to have that uh, that piece by Dennis. William Logan um, may be most known to our readers uh, for his verse chronicle that appears in December and June, but uh, he also has a, contributed to this special poetry section, Mrs. Custer's Tennyson. Now, this is the Mrs. Custer of the Last Stand Custer. Isn't that not right? It is. It's a very curious uh, and uh, wonderful uh, piece in which um, William, who uh, also has um, considerable uh, scholarly chops in in addition to uh, being a reviewer of contemporary poetry, uh, looks at uh, Elizabeth Custer's edition of the poems of Tennyson and her marginalia, the uh, writings that she, uh, the notes that she makes on the poems, um, some of them about um, uh, battle, as in the Charge of the Light Brigade. And uh, this was during a time when her husband uh, was off doing battle. And so uh, to get a window into her um, into her mind and her reading of Tennyson through this particular lens is fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, poet in limbo, Paul Dean one of our great literary writers here, Paul Dean. What's his piece about this month? Well, Paul um, was uh, just going through the um, shelves of contemporary poetry in um, England, where he's based, and lit on a a new book by uh, the poet John Burnside, an English poet. And was very pleased to have this piece uh, by him because it um, really kind of establishes the range of uh, features in this April's issue uh, from 
um, you know, an, an, an ancient poem in, in Middle English, which I'll um, say more about in a moment, to uh, a brand new book of poems that one could walk into um, a bookstore and, uh, and pull off the shelf. And so uh, Paul um, uh, writes a respectful, though qualified, review of this new book by John Burnside. That brings up a question. How do you go about assembling this special poetry section? Well, the nice thing about having done it now for um, several years is um, uh, people uh, know about it. Um, people have written about it in the past, uh, written for it in the past, and and will sometimes reserve a slot. And so that makes my job as an editor um, very easy. Um, I'll drop William Logan um, an email sometime uh, around New Year's, and he'll let me know what he uh, already has in mind for for the April issue. And um, uh, Paul Dean um, has been a regular contributor on poetry and has been featured in the April issue before. Uh, A new piece this year, um, uh, a new contributor to the April issue, is um, an American poet named Peter Filkins, uh, who is also a distinguished uh, translator, and he's writing about a new translation by the English poet Simon Armitage of uh, Pearl, a uh, poem in uh, Middle English. And looking both at what Simon Armitage has done in terms of translating the poem uh, for us, but also um, the factors that go into, the decisions that go into um, making a translation of this kind. And um, Armitage is very uh, successful. Uh, He's created a very vibrant uh, version of this uh, poem, and I think Filkins does very well to put uh, both the poem and the project of translation um, uh, in context. You know, I have to agree with you about putting these special sex- sections together. I work on the uh, December art issue, yeah. and uh, it, it's a little bit like uh, the Macy's uh, Day Parade. You know, they start planning it the day wow. after the previous parade, and, and I feel like with that a- a section, uh, I do start getting emails in, uh, as early as January with people reserving what they want to write about, and then they, they have a long time to think about it, which is great. Well, this brings us to the final piece, um, which is by David Yezzi, uh, Anthony Hecht and the Trauma of War. This is a very special piece, David. I wonder if you'd talk about it. Oh, thanks, James. Yeah, it's the, the caboose in the issue, but I'm, I'm delighted that it was included. Uh, I've been working now for um, the last several years on a biography of Anthony Hecht and started to um, uh, stumble on different clues that kept pointing me in the direction of um, the traumas that Hecht experienced as a private uh, in the infantry during the Second World War. And um, when you're working on biography, of course, you're thinking about uh, the life and the experiences that the poet lived through uh, with a particular eye towards how those life experiences might have shaped uh, the poems. And what really started to uh, surprised me increasingly as I went down this avenue was how uh, how much uh, the trauma of war stayed with Hecht, uh, both personally and in his poems, um, really for the rest of his life. And one in particular, um, a condition that I focus on in, in the piece is the condition now quite familiar, though, when Hecht himself spoke about it in an interview in 1998, uh, was re- newer and less was known about it, uh, this, uh, this sense of post-traumatic stress. 
And one of the quality, one of the the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is um, something uh, referred to as uh, re-experiencing. And this is when a, a veteran, through some stimulus in the present, uh, is sort of launched back almost instantly um, into an alternative present, which is the present of the traumatic experience. And so um, Hecht has a poem called Still Life, which proceeds for several stanzas, uh, ostensibly as a description of the natural world. Uh, And then with really no warning, um, almost uh, between the lines, um, shifts quite uh, uh, violently, quite dramatically in the last um, section of the poem to a soldier holding a Garin rifle um, in combat. And it's unannounced and uncommented on, but it was my sense in, in, in reading that poem and noting that abrupt shift that really what he was describing was the sense that I think many soldiers have of being in the present and um, and 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 somehow being knocked um, against their you know out of their control against their will uh, back into the experience uh, that keeps haunting them. Mm. Now, of course, the poetry section concludes with the poem section, which is something we have in every issue. But this is also a special poem section. And I wonder if you'd explain what you what you gathered for us here. Yeah, I, another reason I look forward to April, just uh, as an editor, I'm very greedy for space, of course, like we all are. And April is a wonderful um, occasion in uh, the new criterion where we're able to devote uh, extra pages to poems. Uh, as you say, we... Um, include poems in every issue, and um, the New Criterion um, from the very beginning has always felt that that was an important part of the magazine. Um, But to have a little bit more space, we can uh, sometimes take that opportunity to present uh, special uh, poetry features, and this April is a case in point where we have a sequence of poems um, uh, about um, paintings by the um, uh, Parisian painter Suzanne Valadon, um, who uh, painted um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, and was um, had a very um, had a, a romance with the composer Eric uh, Satie and associations with uh, Renoir and, and Degas, who uh, was quite a striking um, and accomplished uh, painter. And the sequence of poems we have here is by um, a young American poet now living in Rome, a younger American poet now living in Rome named Moira Egan. And um, Moira, uh, I'm very pleased to say, is the winner of this year's New Criterion uh, Poetry Prize, uh, which is our annual uh, book prize. And when we uh, selected the book uh, and awarded the prize to her, uh, and read this incredible sequence. I, I was very keen to have an excerpt from that uh, for the April issue uh, because they hold, they speak so beautifully one to the other. And uh, Moira's uh, included um, a brief um, 
uh, introduction to the poems, um, kind of setting the scene. And so I'm very pleased with uh, with the way that turned out. The poems are very vibrant, and uh, the paintings of Susan uh, Valadon are um, extraordinary and well worth um, remembering. Um, you know, seen through this particular lens. This is the New Criterion Podcast, and I'm speaking with David Yezzie, poetry editor. David, thanks so much for joining us. James, thank you. And for the second part of this podcast, we're going to hear about Night Vision, poems by John Foy, winner of the New Criterion Poetry Prize of 2016. His book, published just now by St. Augustine Press. And David, you were involved in the committee that uh, selected this winner. I wonder if you could tell us what was it about these poems that struck you? Well, John is um, the 15th um, recipient of the New Criterion Poetry Prize. Uh, and the, um, uh, the judges have always been made up by editors um, from the magazine, Hilton uh, Kramer uh, himself, when the prize began, and Roger Kimball, who uh, writes himself very uh, um, eloquently and, and um, thoughtfully on poetry. Uh, as well as as uh, as me when I was um, uh, became poetry editor at the magazine, and then an outside uh, judge, um, and we've had um, uh, very good luck with um, judges uh, over the years. Uh, Adam Kirsch, the uh, poet and critic, was our outside judge for the 2016 prize and uh, made the final selection for uh, John Foy's uh, book. And um, I'm very pleased that, uh, that he uh, selected this book. Uh, John's uh, poems have um, uh, been known to me for, for years, and I, I think I probably read um, uh, the first John Foy poem I became aware of was in The New Yorker years ago, and it was really uh, quite stunning. He published um, uh, an initial volume uh, called Techni's Clearinghouse, which... Um, I was very fond of. And John had been a finalist for the New Criterion Poetry Prize um, uh, at, from time to time with the book that ultimately became uh, Night Vision. Though it was interesting, um, having been a judge over several years, to see uh, this particular manuscript evolve and grow stronger uh, with revision. Um, I, I think the book... Uh, of course, poets never like to hear this, but I, I think that um, we got the book really when it was in its kind of uh, full um, uh, form, um, and uh, I, I think that it, it grew stronger uh, in the different uh, versions that I've seen, um, and so I, I, we're really delighted that uh, it's finally between covers. Uh, the poems are very strong. Uh, Night Vision um, refers to a strain in the in, in the book that um, deals with um, uh, uh, combat. John himself uh, has never served in the military, but has become obsessed with 
um, the sacrifices that uh, soldiers uh, make and the situations, the political situations and personal situations that armies and uh, soldiers uh, find themselves in. Um, there's also a very strong, um, uh, quite affecting strain of uh, personal poems that have to do uh, with family in the book. Uh, so it's uh, various and rich, and we're very proud to, uh, to, to uh, have, have published it. Once again, it's Night Vision, Poems by John Foy, winner of the New Criterion Poetry Prize 2016, published by St. Augustine Press. And we're now going to go to Encounter Books next door from the New Criterion and join the friends of the New Criterion to hear John read from this book. Thanks again, David. Wonderful. Thanks, James. Criterion Poetry Prize, John Foy. And um, I'm particularly pleased uh, to be holding this book in my hands. I've known John for a long time, so I, I feel uh, uh, personally uh, gratified and, and thrilled that uh, his book was awarded the prize. I should say, just um, uh, for clarification, that it was not I, who uh, finally selected John, but the eminent um, younger poet and critic, uh, Adam Kirsch. And um, Adam, uh, whose uh, writing I, I know you know, um, uh, was very generous with his time in selecting the finalist and um, is someone who I uh, revere very much as a writer and so was uh, doubly pleased when uh, Adam selected uh, this volume. Um, as uh, I think Roger mentioned, this is, um, we've been going with the New Criterion Poetry Prize for 16 years. And uh, Drew Hines was uh, the initial uh, uh, patron of the prize, and we've been supported more recently uh, by the generosity of Michael and Joy Millett. Um, and uh, the series uh, has been very fortunate to publish um, some extremely fine uh, poets over the years. And um, John's book has really uh, carried on the tradition with distinction. So uh, John's going to read a few poems. Uh, Night Vision, as um, he may explain in a moment, uh, is a reference to uh, kind of military goggles, right? How you might. Uh, see in the dark if you were a soldier. And there are poems uh, in this book that deal with uh, warfare. And though John himself, um, to my knowledge, has not served in the military, I've known you long enough, I think, to say that with some assurance. Um, he has, um, through a kind of Keatsian negative capability, uh, put himself very much into um, the psyche of someone who is faced with those particular uh, moral and experiential pressures. Uh, and through his window on these experiences that uh, take people uh, into extremities of violence and political conflict, um, which are both global and then also kind of shockingly personal, 
um, uh, John um, revisits this subject in a way in his book that becomes very powerful. Um, alongside these poems uh, are uh, quite intimate poems of family. And uh, his wife, Majo, a wonderful uh, painter, is uh, here tonight. And um, uh, John's children uh, figure in his uh, poems, as I think uh, uh, parent poets here uh, uh, will understand. Uh, and so there's a real breadth to the book that um, uh, carries through as a kind of um, uh, tonic, uh, a deep uh, humanity, as well as uh, a rather subversive uh, sense of humor, um, another great strength of the book. So I'm very pleased to welcome John Foy. So I, I'd like to thank uh, the new criterion, um, Roger Kimball, David Yezzi, and um, Adam Kirsch also uh, for this prestigious prize. I'm very grateful that my manuscript was chosen. Um, there are some other excellent poets in the room who've won this prize in the past, and it's an honor for me to join their company. Um, and I would also like to thank someone who really made this book look as wonderful as it does, if I may say so. And that's the editor that I worked with here. Okay, Rebecca Hecht. Rebecca, can you just <laughs> put your hand up? <laughs> okay, one couldn't wish for, for a better editor, so I'm very grateful for that as well. Um, I'll read for about 12 minutes, and <laughs> I've actually decided, I've <laughs> maybe 13, we'll see how it goes. Don't me to set my alarm. <laughs> um, David, um, gave, uh, David, thank you for the introduction. Um, I will say, though, that I've decided not to read any of the war poems in this collection, just because they're too fraught, and our times are too troubled, and it just doesn't seem like the right time to read those particular poems. You can read them at home. Um, if you look at some of the poems in this book, you might get the impression that I'm a gun enthusiast, but that's really not the case at all. Um, it's just that when I was about 14 years old, I came into possession of a deer rifle, and it was given to me by my uncle, John McWilliams, who was a veteran of the Korean War. And he lived upstate, and we would see him often during the summertime. And my uncle taught me how to take care of this gun. And he taught me how to clean it, and how to be careful with it, and of course, how to shoot it. And you know, I look back on those days, and I'm very grateful to him for those early lessons in responsibility and control. And so, dear rifle. The 22 caliber crack was clear and light, and the bullet that it sent was gone, went out, away, and you could hear, right after that unquestioning report, the piece of charcoal burst apart. The very thing that you were aiming for blasted to bits at 50 yards. The art of picking off briquettes and wooden boards was what you taught me as a boy. The craft of clarity and range, and how to hit the target cleanly and destroy. I see it in my mind so clearly now, you helping me to stand steady, breathe, and look upon what's out there and believe. This is, um, this is my small contribution to a tradition of rather macabre poems 
about mistakenly killing small animals with power mowers. <laughs> and it's actually, it's a, it's a, a theme, a sub-theme that runs through um, a lot of contemporary poetry in English. And this is called Killing Things. Maybe you'd agree that Robert Frost was lucky not to task the flesh of birds his tractor ran across. The worst they got was just a scare that left their nest exposed. So he and daughter tried to keep it right and cover them with ferns, but even he would never know if they survived that night. It was a hedgehog Philip Larkin killed, though by mistake. He actually went outside to mow the lawn like any man and caught this creature in the blades, the one he fed. What in the end could be more Larkin-esque? He should have been more careful, but at least the hedgehog's death was instantaneous. When Wilbur accidentally killed a toad, it was the power mower once again. He clipped its leg, and off it went to die beneath the cineraria. He used the words ebullient and emperies to talk about the life he'd compromised. What would Philip Larkin think of these? When my turn came, it happened in a field. I hadn't known that I'd gone over it, but there it was, a rabbit, much the worse for having been beneath the rotor blades. I'd laid its back right open to the bone, but it was still alive and looked at me, and then I had to kill it with a stone. I'm going to read this, uh, the poem that David referred to, Night Vision, which um, kind of gives the emotional color to the whole book. Um, it's about, well, it's about trying to see in the dark. Night Vision. You'll never see it if you look directly at it in the dark. It's just a shifting, black on black, something just a part of the perimeter. No claim upon it as it comes along the bales of razor wire deftly and alone. And it is near you now, has somehow gotten in, at peace with what it does in the darkness and why. So I'm going to um, skip the war poems. I'm going to skip the poems about kids. Um, I'm going to read uh, uh, from a sequence. I'm going to read two poems from a sequence about the planet Jupiter and its Galilean moons. Uh, the sequence is called Jovian. Um, and you probably know from your Greek and Roman mythology that um, Zeus, uh, that, that Jupiter um, had a lot of sexual conquests. And that's putting it nicely. Um, <laughs> He, um, uh, and so many of the Galilean moons, which are so-called because they were discovered by Galileo, they take their names from the people that Jupiter oppressed. So that's, that's just, it's relevant here. This is the first one from the sequence. The ones you loved are all in orbit now. Although they're not exactly what they were when you took pleasure with them here on Earth, you are at last a great monstrosity, and they, your Galilean satellites that bear the names of those you lusted for when everything was young. Your gravity ensures that what comes close to you will die. So what we look to mostly are the moons, 
Europa keeps her distance, caked in ice, her prebiotic waters deeper down. She has endured your looming over her for more than 97 million years, and still we don't know how her face is clear. And this is the last one from the sequence. This is actually um, as relevant as it ever can be. If you are interested in astronomy, you might know that NASA now has a space probe called Juno that is in orbit around Jupiter, collecting data and sending it back. <laughs> and um, of course, it's a one-way trip. Um, the, the space probe, after it goes around a certain number of times, will be pulled down into the gravitational field of the planet and destroyed. But it is called Juno, and again, Going back to your mythology, you know that Juno was the wife of Jupiter and his sister. And their relationship was very rocky. What is it, Juno? Why have you come back to visit Jupiter? So much went wrong, and after so much time, what's left to say? Your husband is a dead gas giant now, encircled by some 67 moons that can't appeal to him or slip away. There's nothing untoward here anymore. You too, perhaps, have made a compromise? You are a spacecraft now, an artifact, embarked upon a one-way trip to look your antipathetic other in the eye. You'll go around him more than 30 times, and then drop down, unbearable though it be, to feel again the might of his command. All the poems in this section of the book, this is, um, I think, the the fourth section, they all deal with relationships either directly or metaphorically. Um, and this is actually a, a hockey poem. Um, I'm not a hockey fan. Um, this is the first hockey poem that I've ever written and, and probably will be the last. <laughs> and it's called Grinder. Um, in hockey terminology, a grinder is a, is a player who is not a superstar who scores a lot of goals, but rather a player who has a strong work ethic and is normally playing in the back as a defender and takes great physical abuse during games. So, Grinder. Not good you're playing hockey with my heart. How fast you worked it on around in front and fed it forward to the point. This part of me you slapped away without a thought that what went skittering across the ice was not a puck, although it looked like one, so black and vulcanized. But no. A piece of me it was, you dumped into the zone. You laid it back along the wall out wide, controlling it the way you wanted to, then skated in and checked me from behind and took a ricochet and tipped it through, a garbage goal. That's all you ever scored. And me, a grinder, bleeding by the boards. <laughs> this is a... Um, a poem that's in response to a, a, a poet named Christopher Marlowe from the British, late British Renaissance, um, 1500s, late 1500s. He wrote a poem called um, The Passionate Shepherd to His Lover. And it's a pastoral, and it's very um, idealized, an idealized relationship between a man and a woman. And many poets have taken him to task for his naivete and his idealism with this. Um, and they've written responses to his poem, from Sir Walter Raleigh all the way up through William Car Carlos Williams. So this is my, uh, my take. Come live with me. 
Come live with me and be my love. And get a job that pays enough so that together we might buy a house out near Redondo Beach. <laughs> or let us sit here on a dock and watch the tugboats going by and not be worried over much that time and money disappear. No blue Ferrari, not for me. Instead, I will apply myself to all the wan and tedious things the world declares are practical. And you, though not a lawyer, have the intellect to recognize that heron by the water's edge as one we can depend upon. Sorry. It's Christopher Marlowe. Sorry. <laughs> Let's take account of what we have in this uncluttered idiom and tell what lies we may. And then it's time for Taco Bell. Perhaps we'll never own a home in Malibu or anywhere. And summer's nearly gone, but still, come live with me and be my love. All right, I'll read three more poems. This next one is um, a poem, one of the few in the book that was not published um, in a magazine prior to this book's publication. But I'm very fond of it. It conflates my love of the poet Rilke with my love of Jack Nicholson. <laughs> And if you know The Shining, you'll recognize this. It's called Things Could Be Better, Lloyd. <laughs> I have to change my life, but how? What Rilke said was beautiful and brief, although he never said exactly what to do. Should I start drinking less or maybe more? Should I go, should I be kinder to my friends or go into the woods? Or should I start to read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by that bald mountain man who had a personal relationship with Christ and a mission statement for his cringing family. And then there is that book, Dale Carnegie, I think, on how to stop worrying and live the life that's mine. But then I think the only honest thing to do is quote Jack Nicholson in The Shining, out of his mind and standing at the bar and getting drinks for free from Lloyd, who smiles a bit but doesn't like to talk. Things could be better, Lloyd, a whole lot better. And after that, he goes and swings the axe and kills poor Scatman Crothers, by which point everything has taken a turn for the worse. But that's the way of the world. No angels anywhere. And a far cry, it's true, from the things that Rilke said. Okay, actually, I'm going to read another poem instead of the one I was about to read. Um, this is a poem called Fermi's Paradox. Fermi uh, was the, um, the Italian physicist who looked at the contradiction between the probability of extraterrestrial life and our complete lack of any contact with it. And he asked the famous question, where is everybody? <laughs> so this is Fermi's Paradox. We sat together in the dark and talked about those other worlds Enrico Fermi thought might be awash with aliens because his numbers pointed up the likelihood of teeming life among the stars. But where, alas, did everybody go? You'd think perhaps the prodigies would come to us or play upon our signals and reciprocate. Well, not if they were bugs. It could be that they flamed out the same way we might disappear in Malthusian catastrophes we bring upon ourselves. Or maybe by design, they've gone to hide beyond Andromeda because they've realized long ago how frequently we lie. We're not worth knowing in the end, 
a filthy biomechanical weapons-bearing form of life that builds amusement parks. All, of all the heavens haven't said, the best by far, I think, is this, that we together in the dark aspire not to care. Now, some of our, our dog friends are here. Um, by dog friends, I mean people with whom we walk our dogs. This is a very tight tribe. And so I want to conclude with a, uh, a poem called Dog. Is that the thing you found today? The little goo that you love? It's a piece of day-glow rubber ball you ardently dug out of the snow. You are, my friend, a quadruped that eats dirt and runs around. I put my face among your paws where all good smells originate and stroke the velvet of your ear. Inside it smells like human seeds. Are you the other? Is that the game? Well, I have two legs, you have four. Your breath is lovely, mine is foul. And I speak French while you do not. And you eat sticks, though I do not. And so if I were doctrinaire, the word dogmatic I'll resist, I'd say that we're as far apart as Cain and Abel ever were, and that we didn't have much hope of ever being cheek by jowl. And yet we're always cheek to jowl. You soak up love the way a weed takes all it wants of water and light. You keep your tchotchka close to you and gather yourself to go to sleep on the couch that's practically yours now. You live an unexamined life, but that's okay. You are a dog. <laughs> And who will cast the first stone? Your brown, pulchritudinous eyes drink me in, and I am yours, and hope that you can smell this love I carry around, no questions asked, for you, my dear digger, sleeping like a dog beside me now. Thank you.